Our scripture lesson this evening is taken from Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, page 1,334, 1,354, 1,354 in the Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, if then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is, seating at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you also once walked when you lived in them. But now you must also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, Meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men cleavers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for the wrong which he has done. And there is no partiality. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. In conjunction with it, I'd like to read from the Heidelberg Catechism, page 888 in the Pew Bible. A Pew in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, page 888. Lord's Day 33 in the first column. 
Lord's Day 33, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. And what is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for his glory and not based on our own opinion or human tradition. Beloved of the Lord, we come now to consider the matter of repentance or conversion, true repentance, uh, genuine repentance or conversion, two ways of referring to the same subject. And we come to consider it because the previous Lord's Day that we considered last Sunday evening ends with the question, can we be saved without it? Can we be saved who can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? The word conversion, in its most basic meaning, is to turn, to turn away or to turn toward. Almost every turning is both a turning away from something and a turning toward something. If you turn your back on something, well, you turn around, you're facing something new. You've turned to something. And so uh, conversion is, in its most basic meaning, a, a turning. And the catechism had asked the question, can we be saved if we, if we don't turn? If there is no uh, genuine repentance and turning, if we do not turn from our unrighteous uh, and unrepentant ways? And the answer is uh, no. Now, we need to make clear there, that we're talking, when we talk about conversion, as of a work of God. That uh, Lord's Day last week began with, uh, why do we have to do good works? And the answer is because Christ, by his Spirit, is renewing us to be like himself. Christ is at work in us. And uh, he is working to turn us away from sin and turning us toward himself. That's part of our salvation, and because that's part of our salvation, that will always be found in our salvation. We're not saying that uh, you have to turn and uh, as a condition, a prior condition, before you can be saved, but we're saying that the, the work of God is not merely to atone for your guilt, but it's also to turn you away from your sin and turn you toward God. And because he is at work in you, because he has begun a good work in you, which he will bring to completion, that too is a necessary part of the salvation that we have from God. But now, this Lord's Day reminds us that there is something called genuine repentance, to be distinguished from ingenuine repentance, uh, not genuine, uh, true conversion as opposed to uh, a false conversion. Now, when we use that word conversion, we need to be careful that uh, to note that it can be used two ways, uh, legitimately used two ways, and uh, we tend to use it uh, more one way than another. Uh, the way that it's 
primarily used, the word conversion, is to talk about an initial change in a person's life where they uh, move from unbelief to belief, from being a non-Christian to becoming a Christian. Someone might ask you, when were you converted? Or they might ask you, how were you converted? And uh, describe your conversion experience. Uh, they're using the word in that context to describe the initial beginning of faith in your life when you first realized you were a sinner and needed Christ and uh, put your trust in Christ. Uh, that's referred to as your conversion. It can also be referred to as the, the time of your regeneration, the time of your new birth. And so many people use the word conversion as a synonym for regeneration and the new birth. And it's legitimate to do that. But I want to warn you that that's not how the catechism is using it. There's another legitimate use for the word. Uh, and that is the fact that in the Christian life, there is to be a continual, ongoing turning away from sin and turning toward God. Every time we sin, we should be sorry for it, and we should confess it, and we should uh, be renewed in our desire to live for God. And uh, so, based on the catechism's use of the word conversion, we could uh, speak of daily conversion. Uh, there, in that use, it is not synonymous with regeneration or the new birth. Regeneration and new birth only happens once. But turning from sin ought to happen every time we sin. Uh, so uh, you can use it as a synonym for uh, regeneration, and then it's a one-time event. Or you can use it uh, in its basic meaning of to turn, and uh, therefore it can be used in uh, the context of the catechism. Now, the catechism asks, what is involved? What is involved in genuine repentance or true conversion? What, 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 is this, uh, what does it look like? And we're told that it has two parts, the dying away of the old self and the rising uh, to life of the new self. And uh, the dying away of the old self is a, a process. Uh, the coming to life of the new self is a, is a process. This is uh, called sanctification, where we uh, uh, grow in grace and so forth. But let's take those, those two parts and look at them individually. First, this uh, dying away of the old self. And this dying away of the old self, uh, it too has parts. <laughs> uh, it consists of sorrow for sin. It consists of hatred for sin, and it consists of flight from sin, fleeing sin. Uh, God uh, promises to uh, work this in us when uh, he promised through the Ezekiel, uh, the prophet in Ezekiel 36, uh, I will put my spirit in you. And what's going to happen when God puts his spirit in us? Well, he says in verse uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 30, 31, you will loathe yourselves for your sins. You will loathe yourselves. Uh, boys and girls, loathe is a, a fancy word for hate. You will hate yourselves for your sins. You'll feel really bad that you have sinned and say, 
Oh, what a, as we sang this morning, oh, what a wretch I am. <laughs> Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. We, we begin to see ourselves as wretches, as poor uh, sinners, sinners deserving of the wrath of God. And we are uh, sorry for it. Sorry that we have sinned. Uh, this is called by Paul in Second uh, Corinthians 7, verse 10, uh, godly sorrow, godly sorrow that brings repentance and leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Uh, godly sorrow is uh, contrasted with uh, worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry I got caught. You know, I'm embarrassed because people uh, see my sins and I wish... It hadn't happened. I wish it, if I'd known it was, I was going to get caught, I would have, wouldn't have done it. You know, that, that kind of regret or sorrow, which is all based on uh, my own opinion of myself and my uh, desire to uh, appear uh, good in the eyes of others. Uh, uh, the Apostle James uh, writes in James chapter 4, verse 9, he says uh, to sinners, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You've sinned and you shouldn't be happy about it. You should be filled with grief and sorrow. You should hate that sin and uh, uh, desire to be uh, free from it. Uh, Jesus in his Beatitudes said, uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he explained that. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn about the effects of sin in their own life. Not just mourning the death of loved ones. That too is the effect of sin. But the effect of sin in our own lives. There are two uh, examples of uh, prominent examples in Scripture. or Many examples of people who uh, grieved and mourned regarding their sin. And uh, hated their sin. Think of uh, the Apostle Peter on the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed. Peter had vehemently affirmed, others may deny you, others may leave you, I will never do that. And yet that night, three times, he said, I don't know him, and swore an oath that he did not know Jesus. And then it happened that he looked up and saw Jesus and their eyes met and he remembered what Jesus had said before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he realized that he had done it and he wept bitterly. He was truly sorry for what he have had done. We look at Psalm 51 written by King David after he had committed a terrible sin of uh, adultery and murder and The prophet Nathan came to him and told him about a man who had a single sheep and raised it as if it were his child and loved it. And then a rich man had a visitor and came and took that poor man's sheep and rather than take one of his own and killed it in order to feed his visitor. And David was incensed at the rich man who would do such a thing and said he ought to pay back fourfold for what he had done. In in theft of that nature, paying back twofold was uh, the Mosaic prescription. But uh, this was so heinous that uh, he says you ought to pay back fourfold. And uh, Nathan the prophet says, you are the man. And David was cut to the quick and uh, realized that he had done a terrible thing. 
And he repented and he cries out in Psalm 51, Against you have I sinned and done evil in your sight. He knew that he had sinned against God, that uh, in sinning against uh, uh, Bathsheba and her husband and sinning against his uh, other wives, uh, he he really, in essence, was sinning against God in all of these things and uh, had grieved God by his sin. In Luke chapter 23, we read about the uh, the thief on the cross who, uh, uh, in uh, one gospel account, is pictured as joining with the crowds that are uh, mocking Jesus and saying, uh, if you are who you say you are, if you're the Son of God, then uh, come down from that cross. If you can save others, save yourself. And uh, the thieves uh, said the same thing. If you can save us, uh, save us, you know. But they hung there for some hours, and in the course of that time, one thief uh, observed some things about Jesus. <clears throat> And maybe put it together with things that he had previously heard about Jesus. And he realized that Jesus was who he said he was. And he had a change of heart. And uh, the first thing he did uh, was to rebuke the other thief. He heard the other thief uh, violating the third commandment, uh, abusing Jesus and uh, blaspheming his name uh, by speaking ill of him. And he rebuked him. He says, you know, we deserve what we're getting, but this man is innocent. He doesn't deserve it. And then he turned to Jesus and he prayed to Jesus. He obeyed the command to to pray. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And uh, he knew Jesus was going to die on the cross. He knew he was going to die on the cross, but he knew that Jesus was more powerful than death. He believed Jesus to be more powerful than death and expected Jesus to help him. So he, he had an understanding. He had a change of heart, a change of mind. He turned away from his sin of blasphemy and turned toward confessing faith in Jesus. Real change in that man while he hung on the cross. Well, this is what... Uh, conversion is all about a a change of heart a change of mind a change of thinking manifested in a change of behavior turning uh, away from uh, sorrow with sorrow from sin and and hatred of sin Uh, you and I need to uh, learn to be sorry for our sins and hate sin and then also to uh, to want to be rid of it and, and flee from it You know, the psalmist prays in one place, Psalm 19, Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Keep me from these sins. You can hear him pleading, in myself, I, I can't do it. I need this. I need your help. I need your strength. Don't let these sins rule over me. Many have struggled with temptation and uh, found themselves seemingly helpless. Well, many have had that experience, and that's what gave birth to this prayer. Or Psalm 139, verse 23 and following, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if any wicked way in me, see if any wicked way in me, and and lead me in the way everlasting. God, search me. (laughs) Show me my sin and lead me out of it. Lead me in the way of everlasting life. 
Paul writes uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, flee sexual immorality. And in 1 Corinthians 10, flee idolatry. And in 1 Timothy 6, he speaks about the love of money and the need to, to flee the love of money and flee youthful passions. And in uh, James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Again and again, we're told, you see that sin? Get away from it. Get away from it. If there's something that uh, you've experienced every time you, you go near it or think about it, it, it uh, leads you into temptation. Jesus says, cut it out of your life. Not literally cut off your hand, not literally cut out, uh, pluck out your eye, but uh, Jesus said, get rid of the source of temptation. If there's something that causes you to fall into sin, uh, something that always makes you uh, lose your temper, lose your anger, or uh, go where you shouldn't go, or do what you shouldn't do, then avoid those circumstances that lead you into that. Flee. Flee youthful passions. Flee idolatry. Flee the love of money. Flee sexual immorality. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Instead, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. If you are not sorry for your sin, if you want to continue to enjoy them for a while, then don't kid yourself. You can't fool God by coming to church. Judas was numbered among the twelve for three years and gave every appearance to being a true disciple. But he went to hell. One of the ways that we know that we're not really repenting as we ought is, is if when we are confronted with our sin, we, we minimize them. Uh, we, we attempt to diminish them, to say it's no big deal. It's, uh, and we make excuses for ourselves or we, we compare ourselves to others and say, well, it's not as bad as, as what that person is doing. And, and you really shouldn't get on my back about this because it doesn't hurt anybody and that sort of thing. When we, when we minimize, when we diminish, when we make excuses, when we point to others who are worse than other, uh, ourselves in order to, to uh, make ourselves look better, uh, then... There is no genuine repentance. That's not true repentance. True repentance weeps, mourns, and wails. True repentance is godly sorrow that brings about change, that brings about true repentance and uh, uh, turning away and turning toward. True repentance is loathing yourselves for your sins. Well, that's... That's the first part of conversion, this uh, dying away of the old self, sorrow for sin, hatred of sin, and fighting against it, fleeing from it. But there is also this coming to life of the new self. And the coming to life of the new self also uh, has parts. It's uh, joy in God through Christ, and it's a, a delight to do every kind of good. The joy is rejoicing in God. Rejoicing in His boundless grace and work of deliverance. As Christians, we, we don't celebrate who we are. We don't try to uh, say, oh, look at me and see how good my life is now that I've become a Christian. Rather, we say, look at what God has done. Look at uh, what God has done in Christ. And we, we celebrate what, what God has done for us. You know, the... Uh, the false gospel of self-esteem has been around for uh, 
well, I think since the 1980s at least, uh, so at least 40 years. And uh, I, I heard a, a, a preacher this past week say that uh, it's becoming obvious now, even to secular psychologists, that that the, the false gospel of self-esteem doesn't really work. That is, all attempts to build people up by telling them how good they are or having them tell themselves how good they are, all attempts at affirming people, neither makes them think well of themselves, nor does it help them become more productive. In fact, uh, oftentimes they uh, become more depressed because they, they know they're not what people are telling them they are or what they're told they should tell themselves to be. It, uh, it makes them more depressed uh, because uh, they see the disparity between what's really inside me and what people are telling me, how good and wonderful I am. And, and, and some people who, who believe the, uh, the accolades that they are given to them or that they tell themselves uh, are so satisfied with themselves that they no longer strive to improve themselves or better themselves, and, and they become lazy and unproductive. And it's not working. <laughs> We're not here to, to celebrate ourselves. And uh, I hope at, uh, at my funeral, nobody says, let's have a service to celebrate the life of Ralph Pontier. No, uh, I, don't gather to celebrate my life. Come to celebrate the gospel and what God has done in Christ to save sinners like me and to uh, give us hope beyond the grave. Uh, we come to uh, to, to uh, funerals to, to grieve, but also to be given hope in the face of our grief. We, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. In the midst of our grief, we have the hope that in Christ we have victory even over death. And so uh, funerals should not be a celebration of someone's life. We can give thanks. Uh, for the, the good that that person has done. Give thanks to God, but give thanks to God, especially that God worked in that person's life to save an unworthy sinner. Uh, we delight ourselves in God and what He has done. And then we delight in, in every kind of good that God wants us to do. A genuineness of, of your love for God, the genuineness of your love for God is, is seen in, in your service to Him. True love is to obey God. Uh, Jesus said, uh, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Uh, some people think that love for God consists solely of being carried away with uh, ecstatic feelings, uh, feelings of euphoria, and they uh, attempt to uh, create a mood in worship services, you know, to uh, build up a, a emotional steam, uh, uh, lively music and and humor and uh, entertainment to make people feel really good about themselves. And and then just before the sermon, uh, some mood music to kind of calm people down and put them in a meditative mood. And and then the, the, the sermon with a, a few stories that tug at your heartstrings and make you feel uh, the love of God. Uh, all that emphasis on feelings and how to produce feelings and using psychological tools to produce uh, euphoric highs. That's not what the love of God is all about. The love of God is 
making your bed in the morning, uh, namely an orderly life, a disciplined life. And and one of the first fruits of it is uh, manifested in making your bed. Not that that's uh, an absolute necessity, but it it is a sign that a person is is disciplining themselves. Self-discipline is a a fruit of the Spirit and uh, often the forgotten fruit of the Spirit. And then... uh, uh, Eating well and then uh, going to work and saying, today I'm going to be productive. I'm going to be productive in the use of my time. Uh, you may be uh, 90 years old and no longer need to work for a pay- paycheck, but, but you ought to be productive in, in the use of your time. I uh, remember visiting a, a widow lady in Cape Coral, Florida, uh, who was well into her 90s and uh, uh, got out of bed in the morning and sat in a chair and basically sat in that chair all day and then went to, to bed again at night. And, and uh, But she said, I still work, she said. She says, I can knit and I can pray. And uh, she said, I want you to know, Pastor, I'm praying for you. I'm not just praying for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for the church and for the people of the church and and she was knitting hats uh, for uh, babies at the hospital and so forth. And so she she made productive use of her time. And that's what we're called to do is to to look around and say, what has God given me the opportunity to do? How may I serve him by serving the needs of people around me? We show our love for God in our love for one another. And our love for one another is uh uh, doing what uh, he calls us to do, and uh, the good works that are uh, good in God's sight are those that arise out of true faith. Do you know what that means? A good work that arises out of true faith. Well, the opposite would be a good work that arises out of the, an attempt to bribe God. And say, God, look at the good I'm doing and please reward me with salvation because I'm working for you. You know, uh, I'm doing mighty works in your name and I expect uh, to be repaid accordingly. Uh, that's not true faith. That's works righteousness. True faith says my good works earn me nothing. My good works are simply my way of saying uh, Father, I'm thankful. Jesus, I love you. That's what uh, the motive for good works arises from the gospel understanding that these good works are offered up to God as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so uh, good works to be good have to arise out of true faith rather than out of an attempt to work for our salvation. Secondly, good works have to uh, conform to God's revealed will. They have to be according to what he commands us to do. And that's why we study the scriptures. And there are uh, commandments and there are obligatory examples and there are good and necessary consequences that we deduce from scripture in order to determine the will of God. And uh, we get into that uh, when we study the, the Ten Commandments. And it must be done for for God's glory. Uh, one of the things that uh, many preachers struggle with, including this one, is uh, preaching the gospel for God's glory rather than for one's own glory. Uh, preaching uh, to bring praise to God or preaching in order to receive the accolades of the congregation. 
I, I appreciate some encouragement from time to time and when you do it, but uh, at the same time, I always have to watch myself not to let it go to my head. There's an old uh, Puritan saying, uh, bring not the match of flattery near the powder keg of my proud heart. Uh, you'll make me explode if you flatter me. And uh, that wouldn't be good for either of us. So uh, uh, be careful. Uh, a little encouragement, yes, uh, from time to time, but uh, don't uh, lay it on too thick. Uh, because uh, men uh, like me and others are always tempted to uh, become proud and uh, think more of ourselves than God. And so, But everybody struggles with that, I think, uh, to a certain extent. Uh, people want to... Uh, receive the praise of men. That's why we uh, buy luxury cars and build luxury homes that uh, are designed to impress the neighbors and so forth and all sorts of things. Uh, we, we want uh, to, people to think well of us. And we need to be uh, careful and uh, do it not for our own glory, but everything we do, we do for the glory of God. Genuine repentance or conversion is a a lifelong calling, not a one-time event like the new birth. It's a a daily turning away from sin and daily turning toward God in love and grateful obedience. Now, the last thing that I want to emphasize uh, this evening is that we need to seek conversion from God. We need to seek this change from Him. Conversion is rooted in what God does, although it's not apart from what we do. Uh, every part of salvation is from God. Uh, there's a prayer in First uh, Kings 8, verse 58. Uh, May he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and keep his commands. May he turn our hearts. God is the one who turns our hearts. And again, Psalm 119. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Renew my life according to your word. Or Psalm 80, verse 18. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us and we will be saved. Uh, we need to pray to God as these psalmists do and uh, as the author of First Kings does, looking to God. God, if I'm to be turned... If I'm to, to turn away from sin and turn toward you day by day, I, I need your help. You have to do this. This is your work in me. But that doesn't mean we sit back and, and do nothing. No, we, uh, we have to uh, obey the commands that are found in our text. Uh, put to death your earthly members, fornication, uncleanness, and passion, and evil desire, and, and anger, and wrath, and and malice and blasphemy and filthy language out of your mouth and stop lying to one another. We need to stop doing that and we need to uh, put on uh, tender mercies and kindness and humbleness of mind and meekness and long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Again and again, church members sin against each other and uh, we shouldn't be surprised at that. Uh, the Apostle Paul was, was not a, a sinless uh, person. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon uh, this past week, and he mentioned uh, uh, Paul dealing with the uh, demon-possessed girl who was telling fortunes. And she followed Paul day after day, calling out, uh, uh, this man is uh, doing, uh, saying this uh, from God and so forth, and t- telling you how to be saved and, and so forth. And, and it says there, 
After several days, Paul got annoyed with her. He got annoyed with her. He didn't like her. You would expect an apostle would say, it would say, filled with compassion, he turned to her and said, dear daughter, you need the Lord, you know. But he was annoyed with her and said, come out of her to the demon. Uh, he, he lost his cool. He was an apostle and he lost his cool and God used it for good. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, an apostle said something that he shouldn't have said or felt something that he, he shouldn't have felt. He, he should have had more compassion and not just been annoyed with her. Uh, for one thing, it's a sign of the truthfulness of Scripture that it it didn't paint Paul with airbrush out all the the harsh parts of his personality. They're all there for us to see. He's not Jesus, and the elders of this church are not Jesus either. And sometimes elders say things that they they shouldn't say. And what does Paul say? He says, "Forgive one another." If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. We need to forgive each other. We're all going to sin against each other. And uh, put that on. Seek it from God, but then keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 25 says, If you live by the Spirit, then walk by the Spirit. Or as one uh, translation has it, keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, he's made us alive. He's at work in us. He's begun this good work. He'll bring it to completion. But you have to keep in step with Him. Think of a, a father uh, with his uh, little daughter, uh, three-year-old daughter, and they're uh, walking down uh, the sidewalk, and they get to the intersection, and, and Dad uh, reaches down his hand and grabs his daughter's hand and says, Now come, dear. And, and he, he takes her by the hand, and and they walk across the street, and it's important that that girl hold on to her dad and, and keep in step with her dad, because crossing the street uh, is uh, a risky behavior. Uh, uh, you need to be careful in that environment. And uh, the little girl needs to, to keep in step with her dad. Her, her dad's got her in hand, but she has to keep in step. He, he's uh, doing the work, but, but she's got to keep in step with him. Well, that's our relationship. We're the little child and, and uh, uh, God, our Father and Christ, our Savior and the Holy Spirit have got us uh, by the hand and, and they're working, they're doing the work, they're leading, they're guiding. It's their energy that gets us uh, basically across, but, but we have to keep in step with what they are doing. That is our responsibility with regard to this. All attempts at self-reformation and renewal by our own strength are are doomed to fail. One reason why we fail to change sinful habits is because we're we're too proud to admit how helpless we are and and uh, uh, too proud to seek God's help. Some sins are hard to hate. Some sin yields uh, fleeting uh, pleasures. Many sins are addictive. Uh, Many are even accepted as in society as normal human behavior about which society says we should feel, feel no guilt. We need to humble ourselves daily before God and pray for strength to put that old nature to death and put on the new nature. Live in conscience, depend, conscious dependence upon God, seeking His help and thanking Him for it. Conversion is not a one-time shot. Regeneration in the new birth is, but daily conversion is meant to be a way of life.
turning away from sin, turning toward God in joy and grateful obedience. May God give us such a life. Let us pray. Father, we pray with the psalmist, turn us, O Lord, that we may be turned. Convert us, that we may be converted. In Jesus' name, amen.